Well, we're looking at Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 15. And we're in a series for the month called The Promise. This is the first gospel in the Garden of Eden. And look what happens. We have a couple that have been deceived, that sin, and are evicted from the garden, restricted from eating from the tree of life. The woman is going to be blamed for the rest of history for uh, beguiling her husband to do the wrong thing. Adam will be the one accused of the first sin, and so the race will be seen as guilty in him. And to the bowed-down guilty pair, uh, God comes, and in verse 14, he curses the animal, the serpent, that was a, quite a creature before and after. We don't know all that he was before, but he curses it, and almost in the Hebrew, uh, to bite the dirt. You're going to eat dirt the rest of your existence. I'm, I'm going to take care of you. Then we come to the woman in verse 15. I will put enmity between you, as told to Satan here, and the woman. So there's a hostility. Instead of the woman becoming Satan's partner forever, a hostility uh, is born. What is this hostility? Is it her gender? Uh, no, watch. Goes on. Between your offspring, some translations say seed, but a woman doesn't have seed and the Satan doesn't have seed. It's a descendant. It's offspring is the idea. And so it says, and between your offspring and her offspring, this enmity will exist. And this enmity will come to a head in that your offspring, Eve, shall bruise your head. And he's talking here, this is what's going to happen to the serpent, Satan. And you, the seed of the woman, you will have your heel bruised by Satan or the serpent. So here you see a promise. There's a seed going to come that will crush the head of the one that deceived you, who bought, talked you into the lie and cost you Eden. And he will come and he'll win back, as it were, Eden, win back paradise for you. But in the process, the one you bear, he will be bruised himself. And we'll look at that next week. But today I want us to look at the bruising of the head of the serpent. The bruising. Now, the serpent was simply the animal, the tool that Satan operated through. So when we're using serpent, we're thinking serpent, Satan. Satan used that means to tempt the couple. And so uh, the great victory of Satan in the garden is to kill the race, destroy the race, get Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden to bring about hostility. Verse 16, the woman is told further she will suffer immensely in bearing children. And besides that, she will have a strong desire to rule over her husband, but he's stronger, harsher, and will be brutal to her in return. So you've got the hostility between the sexes 
that where the gospel has not gone has brutalized women on the globe. The gospel is supposed to tame that animosity and make us love them, respect them. But where it has not gone, it's been a hostile, brutal treatment of women. And so we want to see that when Christ came, his mission was to crush the head of Satan. He comes to crush the head of Satan. Look with me. I'm going to show you three things about what he does. Look at 1 John 3, 8. 1 John 3, 8. I'm going to just be picking up verses to tie this argument together that Jesus is the head crusher of Satan. He is the defeat of Satan. And look at 1 John 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Were you ever of the devil? Jesus said in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. He was a liar. He was a, have you ever lied? Did you ever tell the truth? Uh, we were all slaves to sin. According to Ephesians 2, we were dead in sin, and by nature we were children of Satan, and by nature we carried out his desires and his will. We were all naturally born the spiritual offspring of Satan. And so he says here, the evidence of belonging to Satan is a life of practicing sin or rebellion towards God. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Mm. To destroy the works of the devil. Uh, I would encourage all of you in 2017, why don't you learn to master the life of the master? Why don't you bury yourself in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Study the life of Christ and see what he did. And I think one of the most evident things going on in his life on this earth is what he did with sin, disease, paralysis, every kind of condition. As I just listed some things, first of all, he shows up and he meets the devil in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. He's vulnerable. He's weak. Now, remember, our, our first Adam was in a garden. He was well fed. He's in paradise. Everything's perfect. He's got his wife. He's got food. He's cared for. The second Adam, Christ, shows up in a wilderness, 40 days of fasting, and his only temptation is to eat a piece of bread. Cut his stone to bread. But in the will of God, he had agreed, I won't meet my own needs. Everything I do will be in reliance on God, and I won't eat what he doesn't want me to eat. I won't jump from what he doesn't want me to jump. I won't do anything. I'm not coming to be a show-off of my deity. I'm coming to do the Father's will. 
And so in the midst of that temptation, if thou art the Son of God, and in the Greek you translate this way. It's a condition in Greek that says, since you are the Son of God. See, it's no temptation for you to turn stones to bread. You can't do it. But it was if you can do it. And the devil knew it. He said, I know you're the Son of God. Do it. He overcomes you. Um, he, uh, it's an amazing thing as you read the Gospels. Do you ever notice everybody he seemed to run into was demon-possessed? I mean, one person after another. The disease is from demons. The woman is bowed down for 18 years, and he says, a demon spirit has bowed you down. Your physical affliction comes from the devil. Comes from the devil. See, we don't believe that. We think everybody's sick. It's just natural because we don't, in conservative churches, deal with demon-possessed people. They're all over the globe, and the devil can make you sick. The devil can make you a paralytic. The devil can do all kinds of things to your body. Now, that's according to Jesus. I go along with him. See, as Pentecostals, we were always doing divine healing and praying for people. At least we had a theology that said our gospel is stronger than the devil, so our gospel can also heal your body. Conservatives are trying to figure it out. They're right, because Jesus' physical healing often was tied to casting out the demon. Uh, Jesus gets, gets off a boat in Luke 8, and he gets in the country of the Gerasenes. And, uh, of course, the word was out about his ministry. In the worst cases, they said, well, if you're really the Son of God, we've got a guy out here in these caves nobody's been able to help. Can you destroy the works of Satan in his life? He goes there in one narrative. It's two men. In Luke 8, it's one man. He goes out there, and he finds a maniac that we would have in a J-ward. We would have him in a straight jacket, but it wouldn't hold. We got a man out there in chains. We got a guy that's naked, a man whose body is lacerated. He's maybe bleeding at the time or healing from the wounds he's inflicted. A chains don't work. Nothing works. Nothing works. And Jesus goes out there, and uh, he asks the man, imagine this. Uh, let, let's say if he asks me my, my, my name, put me in this cave out there. What's your name? Well, my name is Philip, but this guy didn't give his name. He names the demon that's running him. I lost my name. I'm now known by the demonic forces. that I'm a drug addict. That's my name. I'm a killer. I'm out of my head. I don't know anybody. I'm a threat. No one's safe around me. Now, what's Jesus going to do? Abracadabra? Some voodoo? Some witchcraft? Jesus said, Legion, get out of him. Wait, wait, wait. You're dealing with satanic power. You're dealing with demonic power. 
We're dealing with hoaxes. We're dealing with things. You don't mess with demonic power. Are you not aware, Jesus? Demons are loose. He said, I have come to destroy the works of Satan. Be gone. And pretty soon I heard a swine run off the hill. They're all drowned. The man is clothed in his right mind. It's interesting in the narrative. In that narrative, the town folks ran Jesus out of town. We don't want you in town. You know why? You just shut down our hog business. And Jews shouldn't be raising hogs anyway. They did. They ran him out of town. But you keep reading the narrative. The next time he came to town, they were all on the bank because the, the man, Legion, was healed, had won the town to Jesus, said, you got to meet Jesus the next time he comes into town. He came to destroy the works of Satan. Heal, cast out demons, restore minds, restore bodies. Sin brought sickness. Sin brought demons. Sin brought all these things that go on. Everybody that's sick doesn't have a demon. But there's a clear correlation that when Jesus was coming, he went to the demon-possessed cases to show, I've got the power over demonic power. Now, look at Hebrews 2 for another passage of what he said he would do when he came. Hebrews 2, he said when he came in verse 14, Hebrews 2:14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, his death, he might destroy, and the word is to render inoperative, render inoperative the one who up to this moment had the power of death. That is, the devil. And deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What's he saying? When Christ came, he said, I'm going to deal a blow to Satan through my death and resurrection. Obviously, this is a bit mysterious to us. Satan obviously had the power to kill people. Ask yourself this question. Who killed Job's ten children? And imagine the power Satan had through the weapon of death. You serve this God, I'll kill you. I'll kill your children. I'll kill. Who killed all of Job's animals? He left the devil. So the devil can kill. He was able to kill children. He was able to do all kinds. And Jesus said, when I come, I am going to seize the keys of death and the grave so that the devil is going to be put out of the death business. No more righteous people are going to be killed by the devil. No more Job's children are going to be subject. The, I'm going to be in charge of all who die and be in charge of where everybody goes after they die. Now, Satan never had that power, but he obviously could kill people. If he had the power of death, he obviously could do it. He said, I'm going to destroy that power. I'm going to strip him of it. And thank God, the one you want to know about your life, 
Don't let him threaten you about your kids, about your life. God has your moments, the hair on your head numbered. He's in charge of the safety, the life, and the protection of your family. Jesus Christ is. He came to destroy the devil's power in the realm of death. What a, uh, just think that before he came, even the righteous seemed to be troubled and had fear at the shadows of death, the fear of death, the fear of death. Did you ever fear dying? Did you ever have that? It's a normal fear on one hand, but I think of the paralyzing fear when you don't know Christ and you know you can die any moment and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity to be terrified by the devil who in many demonized countries, New Guinea and other, the witch doctors put in a hoax, we're going to kill your wife, we're going to kill your kids. If you accept this religion, we will wipe you off. And all of a sudden you find out that Jesus I'm going to accept is in charge of my dying. He's in charge of my kids. He's in charge of life. And uh, I'm going to trust him. Devil, you've been deposed. You've been destroyed in the realm of death. Christ is the resurrection and the life. He's in charge of this department. In looking at the destruction of Satan, I give you an outline of probably six abodes of where Satan inhabits throughout the scriptures. The first abode, we see it in Ezekiel 28. He's seen in heaven there, and he's said to be perfect in beauty and wisdom. He's called the anointed cherub, and our word anointed is Messiah. It's like he's the Messiah. Cherub. Now, let me tell you something about spirit beings. We know of at least six categories of spirit beings. In Colossus, we have thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Four different categories. You've got archangels. You've got seraphim. You've got cherubim. The I am on it makes it a plural. But when it comes to Satan, he says, you're the anointed cherub, singular. You're the only spirit being that's ever been put this high. And you've been anointed almost as a Messiah among spirit beings, and you will be the covering cherub that guarantees who gets access to the throne or not. You're the bodyguard of the throne. And you're perfect in beauty. You're perfect in wisdom. And as he talks in Ezekiel, he mentions the prince of Tyre, but then he goes on, behind the prince is the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre is Satan. The prince is an earthly ruler. And he said, you were fine until corruption was found in you. You go on and you find in Ezekiel 28 that at one time Satan inhabited a rock garden in Eden. Be, must have been inhabited with all these rocks and precious stones before Adam and Eve. You read the narrative in Ezekiel. And while you were there, while you were there, this is what you did. You sinned. Therefore, I've cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. I've destroyed thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom 
by reason of thy brightness. Isaiah, how art thou fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground that dislay low the nations? And you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of congregation in the uttermost parts of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So I will depose you. I will bring you down. You were at one time stationed in heaven. I'm putting you down to an Eden of rocks. But even then, you were over this domain. It sounded like he was over the earthly rule. And you got these thoughts, I want to go up. I want to go higher. I shouldn't be lower. I'm going to run things. I, want, I will. I will. I will. He said, since you said you will, you won't. And then he puts him down. And after this, he makes him limited to the atmospheric heavens. So that you read in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 6, he is the God, the prince of the air. He is the God of this age, but the prince of the air. So he now, he operates in the abode of the atmospheric heavens, and his spirit beings are all over. You see it in Daniel. You had demons over different countries. You had angels over different countries. And Satan is running his empire. And as he operates from this atmospheric sphere, he gets access to heaven to accuse the saints. We know that he gets access there. He's called the accuser that's cast down in Revelation. He goes there to accuse Job in Job 1 and 2. He goes there to accuse Israel in Zechariah 3. So he's the accuser that gets up there. But on the earth, he does two ways that the way works among us. He comes among us as an angel of light. So he comes in as a master deceiver. And he operates in the name of religion. And he has his false apostles and his false teachers. And they shine light so that they capture gullible people. Then besides that, he attacks people when he takes the form of a lion. For our adversary is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. So he's up there. And what's scary in the scripture? Don't, don't forget this. He has access to your mind. According to 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says, we are not ignorant of the thoughts of Satan. And it's a little Greek word, nomada. He's able to plant a way of thinking in your mind. And if you don't recognize it and resist it, it can take lodging in your head, and pretty soon you will build a whole, uh, let's say the brethren. He said he's an accuser of the brethren. The devil's able to come down and plant a thought in you like this. He doesn't like you. And you say, I never thought of that before, but where did that, that must be from the Lord. No, no, that kind of thinking never comes from the Lord. Or pride, I, I'm better, I'm, I'm better, I'm superior. Doesn't come from the Lord, that's satanic thinking. Or a lie, I'll tell a lie. Satan's the father of all lies. 
So we have to deal with that. Ephesians says, beware of his methods. He has methods of attacking you in your mental armor. So he has access to the earth. His fourth abode is in Revelation 12. In the middle of the tribulation, he's cast to the earth. And when he's cast to the earth, he pursues Israel. He pursues the woman who gave birth to Messiah. Chapter 20 is his fifth abode. He's taken and he's cast into the bottomless pit, which we use the word abyss, like a mine shaft in the earth. He is cast there and bound for a thousand years. So he lands there. After that time, he's loose. He goes and deceives again. Revelation 20:10. Finally, he's cast into the lake of fire, incarcerated for eternity, never, never, never again to show up in history. He will be destroyed, rendered inoperative, and incarcerated forever. Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. Now, let me just share with you a bit. What does he do with all of the offspring he fathered called sinners? Has Jesus really conquered Satan if he doesn't know how to liberate the children of Satan? Can he do anything for those born in this world, born with no life in us towards God, no love for God, no understanding of God? What does he do? Well, I hope, I hope you use these notes to just try. That's why I'm trying to go a little faster for you. Um, let, here, here's a thing I think you need to know about you and church history. Um, in the fourth century, two Catholics got into a debate. One pastored in northern Africa. The other pastored in Britain. And they got into a scrap, and the Catholic Church had a big church meeting over it. You must know, when you talk about Catholics, know this. For about the first thousand years of history, you had the Catholic Church, which usually meant the universal church. You had Irenaeus. You had, uh, oh, my, Christendom. Yeah, Born-again people, whatever. But about thousand A.D., the church started inventing Mariolatry, confession booths, penance, purgatory, started inventing, inventing all this stuff, papal infallibility, uh, immaculate conception of Mary, all of this stuff, and then it became the Roman Catholic Church, headquartered in Rome with an infallible vicar of Christ. The earthly representative of Christ lives in Rome, according to that theology. The church can save your baby. The church can save you. If they don't give you last rites, you may go to hell. If they don't baptize your baby, your baby go to hell. Incredible power and sway over people's lives. Well, Augustine was back here 
And he and Pelagius got into a debate, and it went this way. Pelagius said, all men and women are born neutral. They're born uh, as not being sinners. And that if they just make the right choices in life, if they never sin, they can land in heaven perfect. Just like your baby. Uh, it sounds good. That was Catholic teaching. Not No, no, Rome did not buy it. But Pelagius did. And Pelagius got in this argument with Augustine, the great Catholic theologian, that Augustine championed this cause. He said, no, we're born sinners. In sin did my mother conceive me. Wait, wait. Are you saying sex was the sin? No. Is procreation the sin? No. What was conceived? A, a baby. Even in the womb, right there is the beginning of my being a sinner. Because the sin nature is tied to procreation. So, we got a sinner in there that does not know God automatically. And given enough time, they'll show you there's something in their nature that is incredible to figure out. They got a nature basically like the parents who had them. And that is scary. And it goes this way. Uh, if you said to a child, and if I just said to use an adult audience, this is true. And anybody have any children? You, you'll verify whether I'm making this stuff up or not. Yeah, that You get this little precious one, and let's say, what are we talking? Maybe let's put 16 months, maybe 18, for sure two, terrible twos. Uh, Johnny, don't do that. And you immediately heard, good, Mom, whatever you say. That is called science fiction. <laughs> don't touch that. It could burn you. Don't, don't do that. And, and just, all right, anything to please you. And you. Just turn your head when you look around. They'll be touching it. Where did they get that? Where do you get it? That if I said to you like this, don't anyone after this service touch the pulpit. I'm the pastor. Don't touch the pulpit. You got it? Now, I want to know how many of you would just immediately figure out a way to do it. You wait until we close the building. You would come back. You, figure, you don't tell me I can't touch the pulpit. You rebel. Where did you get that? Did you just sin one time, or were you born with it? Well, it's called original sin. And the Roman Catholic Church bought it, and it's biblical. It comes on along. You come to the 15th century, and you get a guy by the name of Erasmus, a brilliant humanist, and he gets in a debate with Luther, and they debate the same thing again. And the debate is uh, Erasmus simply says, Man could be per he potentially can be perfect because he's got a will and you can choose and you can th there's no sin in us and Luther 
wrote his most famous, probably, theological treatise called The Bondage of the Will. Do you have a free will? Do you have a will? Now, what, what determines what you choose? A will is inside of a nature, a human nature. Why do I choose this and not that? Okay, let's take chocolate, vanilla. Let's just use a flavor, non-sinful choice. Well, well, okay, in my nature, I like this flavor. Okay, we know that. Why in our nature do we want to pick that which is sinful, that which is a contrary to God? What is there, where did we get the appetite to make that kind of choice? We're not denying you've got the will. But what you've got with that will, you've got a nature that loves sin. You've got a nature that loves sin. And I use the illustration. I got it from Jonathan Edwards. Cows don't eat meat. And lions don't eat grass. Why not? If a lion was starving and you threw a bale of hay out for him, would it end his hunger? That's not in his nature to eat grass. Guess what? It's not in the nature of man to do right apart from a birth from heaven. And Jesus, when he came, he found us as children of Satan. He found us with a sinful nature and a bent in us. And when Luther described our condition, he said, Man is naturally in bondage to guilt. He, no one loves God. No one understands God. No one seeks after God. Romans 3, we're guilty. All of sin, all of falling short. Whoa, whoa, I'm in bondage to that sentence. Second of all, I'm in bondage to the fact that I love darkness more than light. Look at John 3, the famous verse, John 3. You don't mind learning something, do you? Okay. I'm to John 3, famous verse 16. Okay, God so loved the world. God did not send his son to condemn the world. You know why? They were already condemned. He found them that way. They were under sentence. 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why don't they believe? Listen. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is the light of the world. He came and thought everybody would want him. said, no, if I go to you, you're going to expose me as a sinner. You're going to expose the things I love as sin. I don't want you. And he said, well, I'll make a place called outer darkness if you don't like the light. I can arrange where there will be no light for eternity, and that is exactly what hell is. If you don't love the light, you're sentenced to darkness. This is scary. 
It's scary that we have a natural built-in bondage. We don't even have an appetite for the light that would set us free. Look at Romans 8. We're in bondage to the way we think. Bondage in the way we think. Look at Romans 8. I'm showing you what Jesus had to save. He had to do something to us to get us out of this mess. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But notice, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It's, it's at war with God. It, it, it's at enmity with God. The fleshly mind, and it says about it, it's not even able to think God's thoughts. 1 Corinthians 2. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. Why didn't the world receive Christ? Why didn't the wise acres? He's talking to the, the wisdom church, the church at Corinth. Athens is close by. Mars Hill, uh, Socrates, Philo. The, the brain set, the philosophy center of the ancient world. He's addressing this church. Why didn't you guys accept the Messiah? He was among you. And he says in verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Let me ask you, is that talking about heaven? Keep reading. Watch, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. He's talking that the Word of God has revealed to us what we couldn't figure out with our mind, with our eyes. God has revealed them, but he goes down to verse 14. The natural person does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You can't get it without God. You can't get it. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. What we face every time we evangelize, every time we preach. Chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So I've got this natural blindness, and then we come along, and we, we put a blindfold around a blind man. Satan steps in. He puts another layer. I'm going to keep you blind. You're already blind at birth. You don't love the light. You're already condemned. What can he do? This is what Christ does. First of all, he says, I must take their guilt. 
to the cross. I'll do that. They can't take care of their guilt. I'll be their substitute to bear the wrath of God, number one. Number two, I'll send my spirit to convict them, and he will begin to present to their mind the sin of rejecting me, the sin of no righteousness of God, the sin of being under Satan's control. I will do this. I will also visit them who are under the mastery of Satan, and because they are so blind and wayward, I will do something. Ephesians 2, 4, watch this. But God, who is rich in mercy, he said, I will quicken you and make you alive towards me. I'll make you want me. I'll make you thirst for me. I'll give you a How could you ever want what you hate? How could you ever want a God you despise? How could you ever want a God you don't like his light? It messes up your life. He said, I will give you life so that you say, what am I doing in this coffin? What am I doing? The world has become a mortuary full of spiritually corpse. I will give you life. And he quickens us. And in a moment, he said, I'll give you the faith to believe me. And then I'll say, for by grace are you saved. Through faith. And this is not of yourselves, but a gift of God. Let me tell you, every time a sinner has his eyes awakened to the gospel and embraces Christ, he, the devil's head is crushed. The devil loses another one he captured. He loses another one out of his kingdom. And it's the seed of the woman that comes to crush his head. I'll tell you some things I do. A lot of mornings I wake up. I don't know if you do this. This may sound a little eh to you, but I do this. Usually at night I try to kiss my wife before I go into an unconscious state. We say, I love you. I'm out. Like that. She knows that. But in the morning, the first thing I say normally when I wake up, I love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for protecting me in the night. But I just wanted to say I love you. Wait, wait, wait. Child of the devil, child of sin, child of bondage, child sentenced to hell, you love Jesus? Yes, for Jesus, you have saved me from my sins. You have crushed the head of the serpent in my life. I've been set free from the dominion of darkness. I hear Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I do. I'm a big flub, but I love you. You ever say that? I'm a big flop, Lord, but I sure love you. Here, take it. Once in a while, I say, Jesus, you are Lord. Guess what? No man can call him Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The devil been crushed again. I didn't call him the devil, the Lord. I said, Jesus, you're Lord. It's not too bad. And according to Ephesians 2, 7, in the ages to come, God is going to be showing off his people as those that I bought out from the kingdom of Satan by my death and by my power, 
and I rescued them and gave them light and made them mine. And for all of eternity, I'm going to show them off as what grace accomplished. The grace of God was greater than the fall. For where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. I want to say the last thing. The first round, we lost paradise because we ate the fruit. I want to say, hear me, hear me. Devil, you hear me. Devil, hear me. According to 1 Peter 1, 5, I'm being kept by the power of God. According to 1 John 5, 18, I'm no longer in the lap of the wicked one. According to John 17, Christ intercedes for me that you shall keep them in the world among the wolves. John uh, 10 says, I have done something this time. This time, I'm putting everyone that I save in my grip. And nobody will lose paradise again. You receive Jesus Christ today. You got heaven for your home. You got heaven. The, the devil can't keep, nothing can separate you from the love of God once you step into these hands. Once you come to Christ, there's no separation. There's no kicking out. No kicking out. You, you're never going to be exiled from God's house. You're never going to be kicked out. Of, that's over. That's over. No probation. Salvation is not probation. It's the gift of God because he said, I'll tell you what I did, will do when I save you. I will come down. How could I do it? But it really, we think this, I'm going to seal you with my spirit. But that's not what it means at all. This is what he's saying. Breathe it in Ephesians. I'm going to. I'm going to sit with my with the Spirit Himself. He's the seal. He's the seal. He didn't stamp me. He is the seal. I will seal you as a guarantee of safe delivery. And listen, devil, you can't destroy this crowd. You can wipe this church off. Let us get in a church fight. Let's quit giving our money. Oh, you can split up churches. But you cannot separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I'm guaranteed safe delivery because Christ has destroyed the work of Satan and the lives of those he saved. I'm going to heaven, and I want you to know about it. The old black horse used to go. I can't keep it to myself. You don't want to keep it to yourself, do you? Are you going to sinners? Did you know Jesus said, I need sowers. Only my word and spirit can save, but I need some sowers. Keep sowing the seed. Keep, he said in Luke 8 that the devil steals the seed and keeps people from believing. But guess what? There's going to be millions on the other side that believe. Millions that Christ will say for all eternity. Angels, look what the amazing grace of God did. I populated heaven with sinners, with men and women that were stolen by the devil from God, and I came and bought them back, and I've come to liberate them. He came to destroy the works of Satan. Amen. Let us stand. Our Father, I thank you. I belong to Jesus. The Lamb of God is stronger than the serpent. Oh, the lion of the tribe of Judah has stomped the head of my adversary. 
and I'm going to heaven despite his plans, despite any. No, I'm in the grip. I'm in the grip of a God that said, I banned you from the tree of life. I put you out of the garden, and I let your boy kill his brother. But I've started something new in Jesus. He came to save his people from their sins. Thank you. Thank you. I'm saved. I'm saved. And I know that I am. I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, Father, may we tell friends near and far about the conqueror. Greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. We have Jesus in us, his spirit's in us, and Satan, Jesus, he promises in Romans 16, 20, that we saints are about to crush the devil under our feet. It won't be much longer, and we will with Christ will see you crush, and we'll be a part of the crushing team. We'll get to crush you too. You damned our children. You ruined our marriages. You, were, you turned us into all kinds of weird people until Jesus came. But I love the old song, There Was a Reason. There was a reason Jesus passed by. Thank you. You made a visit to this planet that has forever crushed the head of our enemy. Bless your name forever. And all of his people said, bless the name of the Lord. I can't hear you. Bless the name of the Lord. God bless you.